The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. NASDAQ's down more than 2% this morning. And coming up on the show, Jim Chanos revealing his next big short. And it involves the cloud. We'll get the first live reaction from the CEO of one of those companies, Digital Realty's Bill Stein's going to join us. Plus, as consumer confidence falls and ad spend slows, we're going to sit down with the CEO of Bumble, Whitney Wolf Heard. That stock actually outperforming the S&P to start the year. And then the first half, as you know, comes to a close today. S&P is on pace for the worst start since 1970. NASDAQ's seen its worst quarter since 08. How should investors be positioned? This morning, we'll get another Wall Street firm cutting targets for a big range of tech names. JMP lowering estimates for Alphabet, Meta, Snap, Twitter, citing some worsening business and consumer confidence and tightening ad budgets, John. That has definitely been the theme from them and from J.P. Morgan earlier this week. I'm trying to figure out, is this reality setting in? Because there's all this talk about analyst estimates uh, for, for profit. Uh, for the year, full year, are still pretty high, right? So uh, we're starting to see certain companies, whether D, it's in uh, e-commerce, retail, et cetera, pulling those in, uh, restoration hardware today, for one. And we've been talking a lot about Omnichannel and how, I mean, I don't think every company is a tech company, but every company is using a lot of tech. And so this is going to filter through to a lot of different uh, areas potentially. So does it filter through to tech as well? Maybe this is one series of calls suggesting something so. Guys, this is what a lot of folks on Wall Street have wanted to see, these cuts. They said that that was the next shoe to drop, so we are seeing it ahead of the thick of earnings season. So our expectations perhaps are coming more in line is a lot of this sort of weakness baked in as we finish off this half. On that note, guys, um, we've been talking about potential weakness in the digital advertising market. It's usually the canary in the coal mine. I like that note because they highlighted actually a defensive pick in this space, Double Verify. It has about a $3.6 billion market cap. But JMP says that it focuses on brand safety, and this is a name that could actually benefit from Netflix's and Disney's shift to an ad-based model, John. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm also watching the price of Bitcoin as a proxy for risk assets. Right now, right around 19,000, Carl. I mean, I remember when it was hovering around 30,000, and a lot of people thought, oh, if it goes below 30,000, I'll buy it. And then, then 20,000... Now it's below there. I don't know. Uh, well, 30,600 uh, 30, is about where MicroStrategy's cost basis is now averaging. So a lot of these companies continue to double down with more purchases, even though they're well below where they, the average cost is. Double down. You know, swingers. I love that movie. There's so um, Some people trying to earn that nickname, double down. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, let's sift through tech's first half now. We're about to close out another month in the red in what our next guest is calling a pivotal year for tech so far. With the sector's decade-long market dominance perhaps coming to an end, 
Joining us now, Wall Street Journal reporter Gunjan Banerjee. Um, welcome. Good to see you again. And, you know, the last few times we talked, we we're talking about the amount of risk options exposure retail investors had. To, to what extent has that changed? Has the risk profile of the market shifted, Gunjan? It's changed big time. It's so funny. I was talking to an individual investor recently who said he's cashed out of some of his tech stocks and has turned to I-bonds, inflation-protected bonds. So I think oh, that tells you everything you need to know about the risk profile right now of many investors. And as you mentioned, it has been a really, really pivotal moment for tech, one that has drawn comparisons to when the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, where this decade-long dominance that we saw for this really important group in the market has all but come to an end, and many investors are expecting that to continue the rest of the year. Yeah, that's like going from a club promoter to a convent. Uh, it seems like there should be a few stops in between. Um, so wh where do, you, do we go from here, uh, at least as far as the expectations you're hearing from people in the second half of the year? Lots of talk, questions about whether expectations on earnings need to come in. So based on both where you see retail investors and others positioned risk-wise versus where they were six months ago, um, to, to just the, you know, qualitatively, I guess, what you're hearing, what do you think? Well, what's striking to me is that even after these big declines with the tech sector, you know, having its worst year since 2002, many investors are positioned for the declines to continue. We've had, you know, a decent rebound the past few weeks, but data I looked at in June showed that tech was still the most heavily shorted sector of the S&P 500's 11 groups. So people were still betting against Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft. At the same time, we've seen fund flows from growth funds and fund flows into value funds. So a lot of people are positioning for this regime shift that we've already seen in the first half of the year to continue to play out in the second half of the year. That's going to be interesting, Gunjan. I wonder, um, when you look at where yields are, uh, are right now, we got the 10-year below three for the first time in a while. There's some chatter about 287, maybe 27. If it becomes clear that uh, we're getting closer to that clear and convincing moderation in inflation and maybe a pause in September. How much is spring loaded under some of these tech names, do you think? I think that that's such a good point because I think that's one of the biggest factors that's contributed to the decline in tech this year. And it's one of the biggest factors that will impact how it plays out the rest of the year. And investors I've been speaking to have said, hey, if the 10 year stops, stops moving higher, then maybe maybe it means the worst of the declines are behind us. But if it keeps moving higher, that means that there's a lot more pain to come. Um, and it, one thing that's really interesting is that for a lot of last year, we saw investors position for, you know, the, the return to the pre-pandemic market environment with low treasury yields, higher tech stocks. And that's really been turned on its head this year. But as you pointed out, I do think the path of the 10-year will impact how people position on that front. And Gunjan, you've had some great pieces on the retail investor and the amount of leverage in the system that they're specifically holding. Um, what are you seeing now? Any metrics that give you an indication of what they're looking for? Maybe growth to I-bonds as well. I, I do think that's, that's an important shift. And data that I looked at recently did show that there has been a shift from that single stock activity that, Deirdre, you and I discussed you know, over the past year. Instead of those single stock options, people are turning more to index options, more to energy stocks instead of the tech stocks. But I do think 
that there is still a really passionate camp of growth investors that are kind of loath to let go of that trade. The overall, some of that activity that we saw of, of, over the past year, those ultra bullish speculative call options trades, a lot of those have receded. Yeah, well, got to lick some wounds. It's been a rough first half for those willing to take risk. Gunjan, thank you. Thank you. Let's take a closer look at the first half of the year for tech so far. Our investors right now in the danger zone. Our next guest thinks, though, uh, comparing them to Top Gun's Pete Maverick Mitchell, saying they've been ambushed in enemy territory with a lot more pain lying in wait. Joining us this morning, Newberger Berman, CIO of Global Research Strategies, Hari Ramanan. Hari, I like this. I kind of like this metaphor uh, because we're in an area you think where tech operators are having to operate in a different kind of equipment where the, the dials are different and the plane just doesn't go as fast. Yeah, hi, good morning. So, yeah, I think we, we think of the elephant in the room actually being um, uh, the capital cycle that's playing out in tech broadly. And I think one of, your, uh, one of your other guests, as well as a friend of the show, Jim Chanos, has talked about that in the context of even his, his call on data centers. But the real um, sort of issue, we think, is the fact that over the last handful of years, you've seen a significant inflow of capital that's come in, even into private companies. I mean, the last sort of decade, we've seen approximately $200 billion or so per year of venture capital funding of private companies. That is now, you know, over the last few years has been up to $600 billion. And it's just now mean reverting to something like 200 or $250 billion. And I think that's a good and a healthy thing that is taking place. Now, that's actually true of many, many other parts of the tech space, too, including in software, including in the Internet space, including in big tech, where you've seen the capital intensity of these companies that have been so-called or historically known for being capitalized businesses grow. So um, as the capital uh, looks to generate a return, and sometimes those returns are going to be uh, lower than what they would have provisioned for or assumed. Um, that is going to re lead to some recalibration in investors. And so we think what uh, what is happening is sort of both healthy, but it's not quite a bubble. People uh, think about sort of history doesn't repeat itself. We think it history does rhyme. So it's not quite a bubble of the 1999-2000 types, but these are real companies. But uh, they're going through an old-fashioned version of having thrown too much capital uh, on uh, the back of extrapolating certain trends that might be a little slower to to play out. Right. So as a result, you're looking at for names where they've been through cycles before, right? There is some wartime experience uh, and they are focused more on shareholder returns than chasing addressable markets or new customer acquisitions. What, what sort of tickers does that take you to? Yeah, so maybe before that, when I think about sort of our playbook, uh, I think you were right to, uh, you know, you talked about sort of swingers and doubling down. Uh, I tend to think of uh, life in the form of uh, Pete Mitchell or Captain Pete Mitchell uh, facing this predicament where uh, he's been flying F-18s for a decade, uh, doing sort of cartwheels and loops and dogfights and coming out like heroes, except now they're ambushed. And um, what they have to do is go and find an F-14 dust it off, really jumpstart it, and sort of fly back to safety. So what that sort of implies for us is that there is equipment out there. There are things to do in this space. It may not just not be in the same sort of um, um, uh, dashboard or the dials are going to look different in an F-14. It's going to be a slower plane. The amount of Gs you can put on are going to be lower. So I think we are finding opportunities in cyclical spaces. We're 
finding opportunities where there's headline risk. We're finding opportunities where there's uh, idiosyncratic uh, uh, place to be had, as well as being opportunistic, but very selective as it relates to the more heavily trafficked um, uh, software space. So when we look at sort of opportunities, we like the industrial economy. And so inside tech, there's companies like Analog Devices, which have been very careful about expanding capacity. Yeah. I realize that um, there's a recession call out there, and so people are generally nervous about semis. We're not that nervous because semis have been really battle-tested. And if you pick your spots inside semis, uh, it's, quite a, it's going to be quite a good place to be on the other side of what may be a mild, moderate, or a severe recession. So in other words, a recession doesn't scare us, a capital yeah. cycle does. Hari, it also sounds like you're describing maybe legacy tech companies that have been through recessions before, downturns before. I just wonder, they may be able to land the plane, but are they able to do loops? Can they still innovate for the long term? Is this a safe play or yeah. is it one that yeah, no, you think a... is going to, you know, have good returns in the longer run? Sure, that's a good that's a good point and it's a nuanced point so i'm not referring to legacy tech uh, which seems like a reasonable hiding uh, spot right now i'm thinking about companies that are actually a bit more geared cyclically i'm talking about companies like t-mobile i'm talking about companies like constellation software and even a faster growing company like crowdstrike so innovation is going to be quite important um, but i believe that uh, companies that have been able to pivot to understanding the economics of growth is going to be even more important than just growth itself or innovation for the sake of innovation itself. And that is going to be uh, tested by the, the understanding of management teams to not be delusional about the environment they're operating in. So let's talk about those high growth software companies. Let's let's show us sort of show us sort of what you're made of in the sense we've not seen really much by way of interesting capital allocation coming out of them. Uh, what about buying back your own stock relative to the next big deal you can do? Uh, I think we'd like to see more of that. And I think we'd like to see more of that in companies that are arguably trading at higher multiples than, than necessarily just uh, owning some legacy tech, which might be a nice place to be in today for the next sort of handful of months. But to your point, right. they're not future-proofing their business models. Bottom line, are the laws of physics in effect, again, because it seemed for several years like, you know, the, the old rules of how to value stocks didn't apply. And it sounds like part of what you're saying is you don't have to see far into the future to win. You could just look at some tried and true names, some tried and true metrics and what's likely to happen and place some pretty good bets. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I would argue. So, for example, if you take a company like T-Mobile, uh, T-Mobile is uh, by far the aggressor in the uh, wireless services space. Their acquisition of Sprint was effectively a version of sort of saying how Micron bought Elpida in the downturn in memory. And so what you see is you've not seen capacity expansion that's taken place in sort of wireless services. Here, they've got an interesting value proposition. They are the low-cost operators in the space, 15 to 20% sort of lower price points than their, than, their, than their peers, with a coverage that is 2 to 3x, 200 million pops already covered on a 5G network relative to the incumbents. So we think they're in a great place to sort of play offense. It doesn't trade like a value stock, nor would I actually look at that as a, an old tech company. It's actually a company that should be able to have a decent growth algorithm while generating unit economics that are actually quite compelling in the market. Um, more so than what you might be um, dealing with as it relates to return on incremental capital that has been deployed into areas like data centers that Mr. Chenos is, is, is going to talk about, which, you know, I think we're actually sympathetic to the fact that returns have actually been declining. It may not be as low as 3%, but lots of companies have plowed too much capital into expanding capacity and returns there are going to be a bit more meager. 
uh, certainly holding its own against the broader market so far this year uh, with a 15% gain. Ahari, thanks. Great to see you. Turning now to crypto, another asset that's had a really rough quarter and a half. Bitcoin trading below 19,000 this morning. It is above by about 150 bucks at the moment. Another blow to the industry, the SEC rejecting Grayscale's proposal to turn its Bitcoin fund into an ETF. Kate Rooney has more on that decision. Kate. Hey, D. Yeah, that's right. The latest bad news for the industry, the SEC citing potential for market manipulation and lack of proper investor protection this breaking last night. And then moments later, Grayscale punching back, filing a lawsuit against the SEC, claiming the agency is inconsistent and acting arbitrarily and capriciously in violating its own rules. The crypto industry really up in arms this morning. A lot of blame falling on SEC chair Gary Gensler. He's been talking for months about the need for more regulations, some calling this a missed opportunity to expand the SEC's authority in crypto. Those I'm talking to criticize the strategy of regulating through one-off decisions and lawsuits. Others tell me the SEC ruling was expected. Grayscale's Bitcoin trust, GBTC, has been trading at a roughly 28% discount to Bitcoin itself. It used to actually trade at a premium, and the fund holds more than 3% of the total Bitcoin in circulation. Elsewhere this morning, more fallout from the crash in prices. A source confirming with CNBC's Arjun Karpal that crypto hedge fund Three Arrows is liquidating and restructuring. It comes after a $670 million default. No comment from that fund. JP Morgan, though, bringing a little bit of optimism optimism this morning, saying that the worst may be over. Strategists in a note this week say failures shouldn't be surprising, surprising given the massive declines in tokens and leverage, calling Three Arrows a manifestation of this deleveraging process. The current deleveraging cycle may not be very protracted, as they put it. All of this hitting the crypto-related stocks. Coinbase really bearing the brunt of it so far this year. Shares are down about 80% in the last six months. Back to you. Kate, thanks. Now we talked yesterday about Jim Chanos's new short thesis, Data Center REITs, the real estate companies that house all uh, of those, that equipment, that networking. Uh, two companies he cites, Equinix and Digital Realty, um, are in focus. And we've got the CEO of Digital Realty coming up to respond. Chanos himself responding to us on Twitter, saying, can't wait. Some DLR numbers, 2016 versus 2021, EBIT margin, 23.2, coming down to 15.7. Pre-tax return on invested capital, 4.5 to 2.0. Vacancy rate, 11 to 16. This is serious deterioration over the past five years. We're going to have the company's take on all that in a moment. Tech Checks back real soon. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. 
Along with paying users, Bumble relying on advertising for a portion of its revenue. So as consumer confidence and ad spend slows, what is the impact of the stock? Our Julia Borston joins us now with Bumble CEO Whitney Wolf Hurd, who is at Aspen Ideas. Hey, Julia. Thanks, Carl. And thank you, Whitney, for joining us from the Aspen Ideas Festival. We're going to get to all those macroeconomic questions in a moment. But first, I want to start off with your comments on the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade. Tell us why it was so important, not just to you, but to Bumble as a business, for you to speak out in criticism of that decision. Yeah, Julia, it's a devastating um, turn of events. And I founded this business in 2014 ultimately to put women in control of their relationships. So you can imagine that this just gives us every, um, every opportunity to re-energize that mission and to be motivated at levels we've never been motivated at before. And we're going to do our best to fight for women to have control over their decisions and control over their relationships. And we are going to continue this, this fight on a global level. And do you think that this change that the Supreme Court has just come down with is going to change the dating industry, is going to change the way your users behave? You know, it will be really interesting to see consumer behavior shifts and trends. I do know that just listening to our internal team and the feedback from a lot of our members, women are more motivated now than ever to stand up for themselves and to take a stance and to be really commanding in what they're looking for in love, in relationships, and to say, hey, I will not be uh, in the passenger seat anymore. And so this just gives us all the more momentum to keep pushing with women being in control in our product and to really carry this on a global level. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you've taken a stand on a couple different issues. You've lobbied for legislation um, to make cyber flashing illegal. A lot of companies don't want to be as public uh, uh, about different issues. Why is this important to Bumble the company? So, Julia, this is just core and authentic to the DNA of the business. When I started this business, it was out of a belief that the Internet was rooted in toxicity, and it was not encouraging better, healthier behavior. And so everything we've done from day one has been to engineer kinder, uh, less toxic behavior to ultimately drive healthier and more equitable relationships. And so that means we have to stand up for what we believe is right. We have to say no to what we believe should not be allowed on our products. And if you look at the strength of the business, this is not just for the mission. This truly drives good business, and we're really proud of what we've achieved to date and where we can go from now. Um, so Whitney, shifting over to the strength of the business, I know in Aspen there's a lot of conversation right now about economic uncertainty, about consumer responses to inflation. What are you seeing both in terms of the impact to advertising and also consumer behavior right now when it comes to both the subscription and just general activity? So Julia, as stated on our previous earnings call, we believe that love, connection, and the desire to meet new people is just a foundational human need. And if you look throughout history, regardless of macroeconomic trends and ups and downs, people don't stop meeting each other. People don't stop the quest for love. And so we're really proud of the services that we offer and that need that we serve. Um, to date, on Bumble app, we have not seen any, um, any real uh, impact, and we will continue to monitor this and and iterate as needed. 
You know, it's interesting. We talk about which industries are sort of recession proof. Um, the, for instance, the movie industry has historically been recession proof. There are all sorts of questions about how if we do enter recession, how this one could be different. Do you think that the dating business is fundamentally going to be recession proof in terms of being something that people are always going to be willing to spend money on? So, Julia, if you think about the dating wallet, it's very expensive to go out into the real world, to buy drinks, to get dressed, to get a ride somewhere. This is an expensive quest to find love, to find connection. The fact that you can, from the comfort of your home, on your phone, for a fraction of the price, get access to hundreds, if not more, um, people that you could be extremely compatible with just in seconds, minutes. Um, if you look at the, the time save, the money save, this is a really interesting opportunity for people as they start to make tough decisions about where they, where they spend their, their leisurely money. And this is such an opportunity for people to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to skip the, the $100 of drinks on a Saturday night, and I'm going to find someone I actually have something in common with, and I will do it um, using the power of these products that we, that we serve with Bumble Inc. And, of course, all of this comes as you face more competition. You know, you have Tinder uh, has, now as a woman in charge, and she's talked about the importance of focusing on their female consumer, which has always been your focus. Uh, and you have new startups, such as one called Lolly, which is taking sort of a TikTok approach to digital dating. How do you see the competitive landscape as being a threat right now? So I'm so proud to see more women in leadership positions in this space. That's fantastic. We've been focused on this for um, seven plus years now. This is so core and foundational to who we are. Women, focusing on women has to be authentic. It can't be an afterthought. It can't be something that you just plug in um, to try and attract more customers. And it's really fascinating. We've always put women in the driver's seat. We've always focused on engineering a product that serves women, protects women, and does things in a way that women want. And so because of that, we've seen the momentum that we have on a global scale. We continue to, to be very proud of our focus on women. And as it pertains to some of these newer startups, I think that's great. I've been in this industry for now a decade. I have seen more startups come and go than I can count. And what that really insinuates is that you have to have uh, a double-sided marketplace. A great product can only exist if the customers come. And to create network effect, it's incredibly difficult. And that's why you've seen only a couple um, players remain in this space over the last decade. And so I'm really excited to see innovation. And we, we stay very committed to being an innovative company, but always putting women in the driver's seat in control of their experience. And we're excited for everything ahead. Well, Whitney, we understand that you are in a quiet period, but we hope you will learn more about how you are managing some of these macroeconomic challenges when you report your next quarterly earnings. And we hope you'll come back to talk about it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Julia. Julia, our thanks to you. Uh, by the way, markets uh, close to session highs here. S&P losses cut by more than half. Let's get a news update with our Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Supreme Court ruling that President Biden can shut down the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, the Trump-era policy requiring people seeking asylum at the southern border to wait in Mexico while their claims were decided. The court said the Biden administration acted properly in seeking to end the program, which Biden did immediately after taking office. Inflation remained at high levels in May, according to a measure closely watched by the Federal Reserve, 
core personal consumption expenditures. Prices rising 4.7% in May from a year ago. That's a slightly smaller rise than the previous month, but still around levels last seen in the 1980s. And Walgreens shares down about 4% this morning. Despite an earnings beat, Walgreens online sales jumping in the U.S. and retail sales bouncing back in the third quarter. But demand for COVID vaccines dropping, weighing on pharmacy. The drugstore chain reiterating its forecast for the full year. Back to you. Bertha, thank you. After the break, Jim Chano is revealing his new short. Data center REITs like Digital Realty Trust, the stock dropping yesterday on the news, and we will get the CEO's response on the other side of this break. Stay with us. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. to a big short in the cloud investor, Jim Chanos. He is targeting data center REITs. Yeah, it's a dangerous call, though. And, and here's why. It's because there's more to the cloud than just the public cloud. There's hybrid as well. And yes, there are some traditional players that are going to be caught flat-footed, but there are others that are going to be in demand as customers need more than public cloud services. And if you bet on the wrong ones in the wrong regions to short, you could be left short. Janos actually has been watching today and uh, tweeted to us, LOL, we're not shorting the cloud, D. We are short the legacy obsolete brick and mortar boxes with declining cash flows at insane valuations, 70 to 90 times declining EPS. It's important to watch us with the volume on too, right? The banner, there's more to it. So <laughs> you're shorting the legacy infrastructure players, but I think your argument, John, was that there's a lot of other companies that are still using public and private. Chano's responding again. I have the sound on, guys, but would stress the financial reality versus John's narrative. Yes, there will always be some demand for hybrid solutions, but at lower rates is negative 27% EBIT growth worth over 100 times EPS. Jim and others following that short strategy are going to have to be really careful to understand what's beneath you yeah. know, the roof in those old facilities. Make sure they don't get caught on the wrong side of the future. That was a little recap of our Twitter and television interaction with investor Jim Chanos yesterday, who earlier this hour told us that he is looking forward to this next interview. So joining us now to respond to that data center short is the chief executive, uh, perhaps most impacted by that call, digital realty CEO Bill Stein. Bill, it's great to have you with with us. Uh, Let me give you the floor. What is Jim Chanos getting wrong here? 
Well, I think Jim uh, maybe isn't aware that demand has never been stronger in our space. We've had record bookings the last two quarters. Uh, our fourth quarter bookings were 156 million annualized. Our first quarter bookings were 167 million annualized. That's up over 30% from the prior four quarters. And in terms of uh, older legacy space, we're releasing that space to some of our most sophisticated customers at extremely high rates. So he calls us, so a, Bill, he calls the I believe. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead, finish your thought. I was gonna say, I hate, he refers to the cloud service providers as our competitors, but we view them as our partners and they view us as partners. We enable their growth around the world. Okay, Bill, but I think that his argument centers around valuation. He says that your company should not be valued like a premium REIT because you're not simply collecting rent checks. You're actually a very capital intensive business. So perhaps you could walk our audience through your outlook on rental rates and how you can increase your return on incremental capital deployed. We are increasing our, our rental rates right now. We've been pushing uh, uh, rates since the first of the year. We're pushing rates on new leases as well as uh, renewals. And we're beginning outlook, to- Outlook uh, though. Our outlook is, is, uh, is very strong, absolutely. Uh, as I said, our, we've been pushing rates uh, this year and we'll continue to push rates. Uh, we and our escalators are uh, are now being indexed to uh, CPI, so we're hedged against inflation. I mean, when you think about uh, data center REITs versus other REITs, you know our our cash flows are basically a product of long-term leases with high-grade uh, credits uh, that uh, are indexed to inflation, and residual values will be, I think, uh, further protected by uh, the current inflationary environment. Bill, I'm curious about how much of the advantage that you have now in location, in pricing is durable and to what extent you can expand your total addressable market because uh, arguably this is a valuation you're going to have to grow into and I would expect that these hyperscalers are going to continue to make the case to their customers you can do more with us in the facilities that we actually own, you can do less hybrid. Whether they'll be successful or not is an open question, but if you have a larger total addressable market, if you're able to build more unique technology or lower cost into your facilities, I imagine that would give you leverage. Can you do that? We're definitely doing that. I mean, first of all, we're expanding around the world. Uh, and we, we're expanding into Africa, we're expanding in, in new markets in, in Europe, and then even in existing markets in, in Northern Virginia, for example, the largest uh, market in the US, we're now building on our Western Lands campus, which will give us the uh, ability to uh, build up to one and a half gigawatts of new capacity. And we have demand there from uh, several of our of the largest uh, CSPs in the, in the world, who in the past, uh, one in particular has tended to build their own, but now they're talking about uh, leasing several uh, fully improved data centers from us there. Okay, so how should investors understand your capital investment cycles? Because your profitability, mm -hmm. I imagine, is going to go down as you're building out in these new locations, and it's only really going to work out longer term as you, if you're able to operate at lower cost and charge higher rates uh, than others would be able to. So we really have two lines of business. 
we have a, a line of business where we, we lease to the cloud service provider. And these are the, the larger boxes that are connected on our campuses. And then we uh, lease to the enterprise customers at higher rates. And those connect into the cloud service providers. In the case of the uh, longer term lease net assets, you know, yields on those uh, have been in the high single digits. And we have, a, uh, we have several permanent partner capitals, permanent part capital partners, including our, our digital core read, uh, which is based in Singapore. And we're contributing stabilized assets into that partnership at uh, roughly a 4% cap. So if you think about it, uh, you know, a development yield in the high single digits contributing at a four, uh, that's, that's more than two X of value creation when that goes in. And that allows us to recycle capital. And then we're also been selling uh, some of our older non-core assets quite successfully, over $3 billion at this point. Uh, so the, the portfolio has changed quite a bit in the last few years. And we have a far more network-dense portfolio uh, that uh, is more enterprise-focused. Bill, when you think about the, the runway for pricing power from here on out, given all of the attention and focus there is to reining in inflation and specifically rent, how long, how long can that last? I mean, would you argue that we're in the process now of, of topping out on pricing power? Absolutely not. And, you know, while pricing is driven in part by inflation and, and higher input costs that all data center developers are facing, it's also a function of uh, supply and demand in individual markets. And what we've seen in many markets around the, the world is that supply is definitely tightening while demand is accelerating which has given us tremendous pricing power around the world. So, Bill, I come back to this question of capital investments and how you compete with those hyperscalers that are generating huge amounts of cash flow. They're sitting on huge cash piles. And as John said earlier, they're developing the technology in-house that customers may want. So can you give us an idea of how much you're going to need to spend over the coming years in relation to your outlook for rental rates? Well, our, our capital program this year is $2.5 billion. And if you think about our uh, the, the cloud service providers, think about what their returns are on their capital on their core business, which I would argue is probably easily north, north of 30, maybe more than 50. And then think about what returns are in the real estate sector. And so if I'm sitting as the CFO of a large cloud service provider and I'm thinking about capital allocation, why would I invest capital in real estate, in data centers, in hard assets, uh, when I can invest it in my core business and earn a much higher return. Right. And I, I guess with interest rates rising, that changes the uh, calculus on on um, capital investment as well. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you are arguing that because your current portfolio, data center-wise, is more network-dense, more enterprise-focused, the, the comps that Jim Chanos is talking about, return on invested capital, vacancy rates, et cetera, isn't exactly apples to apples because your current portfolio is positioned better and you believe you're going to be able to reduce those vacancy rates in these newer facilities because of that and your pipeline confirms it. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? I mean, that's absolutely right. Absorption has been incredibly strong and in fact, I've just recently, I've taken the opposite side of Jim Chanos' trade. I bought, uh, I bought digital stock uh, with my own money. And I've got plenty of equity as it is through, the, uh, uh, through my annual equity awards. But I've bought equity at these levels myself. 
If you think about some of the very sophisticated institutional investors, Blackstone and KKR, for instance, who have um, taken companies private, they're also taking the opposite side of Jim Chambers' bet. Bill, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for coming on to discuss this. Bill Stein. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll get a deep dive on Apple's China exposure and the potential impact of the stock down about 2% today in a fairly rough tape, although we are well off session lows, S&P 3785. last earnings report, Apple warned about a potential $8 billion revenue hit from lockdowns in China. Steve Kovac looking into how likely that is and the potential hit on the stock, what products could be impacted most. Steve? Yeah, John, Apple warning in April that this quarter could see 4 to $8 billion hit to sales due to those China COVID lockdowns. So let's talk about how bad was it? We can read some of the tea leaves from analysts and other reports coming out throughout the quarter. Uh, First up is iPhone ship times. They did not slip. You could literally walk into an Apple store today and buy an iPhone. And that's a sign Apple prioritized its most profitable products throughout the supply chain in China, moving productions to other regions that weren't in shutdowns. And Morgan Stanley's Katie Huberty note this quarter, knocking down reports that the iPhone 14 has been delayed. It appears to be on track. Meanwhile, UBS analysts saying iPhone sales were up 13% in China for the month of May as lockdowns loosened in the country. But it's a different story for the Mac. Some signs those China shutdowns affecting the newest MacBooks announced this month. No specific launch date was given, which some people saw as a sign of supply chain problems. And the new MacBook Pro that just came out last week, a lot of people noticed Apple put a slower hard drive in there, also leading to some ideas that maybe this was due to those uh, supply uh, constraints. Uh, Meanwhile, services less positive in China, analysts seeing slowing growth in the China App Store sales. This is a similar theme that we've seen throughout the pandemic as people get out in the world, they're spending less on apps and gaming. And B of A analysts estimating just 3% App Store growth there in May versus 11% a year ago. By the way, we'll get the final results from Apple itself on July 28th when they report the June quarter earnings. Back to you guys. Uh, Steve, thanks for that. Steve, we're going to talk more about uh, what the quarter may bring in the uh, weeks to come for sure. Still to come this morning, Snap looking to diversify its revenue model, plus the streaming names you want to own, maybe some you want to stay away from when we come back. on some big names in the streaming space. Morgan Stanley reiterating its overweight rating on Disney, saying its content is undervalued at its current share price. Similar story for Warner Brothers Discovery. Benchmark initiates at buy, saying they think HBO Max and Discovery Plus are well-positioned in the global streaming market. On the flip side, JP Morgan, more bearish on Netflix, saying that they have limited visibility into the platform's subscriber growth. That stock, of course, coming out of a brutal first half down 70% on the year. There's more check check after this. Don't go anywhere.
you may remember last month, Snap CEO Evan Spiegel warned the company would miss on revenue and earnings for the coming quarter. Yesterday announced the subscription plan in an effort to diversify their income streams. Julia Borston is back with a little bit more on that strategy. JB. Carl, this is Snap's first subscription service. They're calling it Snapchat Plus, and they just announced it yesterday. Now, for $3.99 per month, subscribers will get access to features on Snapchat when they're being tested before they're widely available. Subscribers who would still see ads would get access to the likes of an ability to pin one of your friends to the top of your chat history as a BFF, and also the ability to see who has rewatched a story you've posted. Your Snap shares are down about 80% in the past year, and 75% of analysts have a buy rating on the stock. 23% have a hold, and the remaining 2% have a sell. This move to diversify Snap's revenue streams away from advertising comes as the company invests in augmented reality features that are designed to drive e-commerce through the platform. So, Carl, this feature certainly seems focused on really passionate core fans of the Snap service. But you can see there could be more opportunities down the line. And everything's plus now, you know. Tech Check Plus. All right, great, Julia. Thanks. Disney After the break, Plus, Jim Ch- ESPN Plus. Yeah, you got exactly. It. Uh, yeah, Jim Chanos responds once again. We're going to have those comments. We're back in just a moment. data centers for today anyway, responding to our interview with Digital Realty CEO. That's one of the data center companies Chanos is now shorting. Chanos tweeting moments ago, facts are stubborn things, quote, demand is strong, unquote, etc. And I would expect the CEO to stay with that story if the numbers are all going the wrong way over one, five, and ten years. This is a low return business that's getting worse, trading at an insane valuation. D, I think the question is, as hot as data and AI and localization are going forward, is this one of the areas that investors might continue to value higher than others? Don't know. That's the question. It's all around valuation. But I I think Chano should come on and talk to us himself instead of continuing to subtweet us. Anyway, someone in the REIT space uh, tells me that this short is nothing new. And if you had bet on this, Um, In the past, you'd certainly be on the wrong side of it. We'll see if anything's different this time around, Carl. Yeah, uh, it's the different uh, inflation-led recession uh, narrative that makes this a unique situation because historically REITs are areas where you would turn to if you saw uh, this kind of economic macro backdrop. By the way, we should mention uh, a lot of the selling pressure came from Europe, as Pisani said this morning. And now that they've put their first half officially in the books, will we see any relief on this side? We've cut our losses in half. Ten-year is back below three. Atlanta Fed now does see negative growth in Q2 which technically would mean recession, but we'll have to see what actually happens. We do look forward, though, to getting the second half of the year uh, underway. Let's get to Frank Holland and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.